all the sons and the daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but they are not from you. And though they are with you, they belong not to you. Good evening, and welcome to another edition of On Parenting. Good evening, and welcome to On Parenting. This is our April show, and here at WPFW 89.3 Pacifica Radio. And this is Jack Petras, your host, and I welcome you. Uh, This evening, we're going to be talking about young children, and I think the best place to start is with the look at a parent's face when a newborn comes, and that feeling of dedication that a parent has for this new responsibility, this long journey of childhood, and how we dedicate ourselves and how we work continually for the good of our children, how we give them our very best. And out of that work develops a deep trust, trust that the children have for us, that we will be there to care for them, to meet their needs, to serve them and help them, and how that trust that we have is transferred to other adults when we ask our child to be in a care situation and how they trust that the adults that we choose for them to be with will have their best interests at heart. And then a time comes when we send our children to school and that same look of trust is in their face when you hold your child's hand and you take your son or daughter to the preschool or the kindergarten and you put them in the care of the teachers at this school and they trust that we'll have their best interests at heart. The question is, do we? Tonight our guest is Joan Allman. Joan Allman is the director of the Alliance for Childhood here in the United States. She's the co-founder of the Alliance, and they have just released a new report called The Crisis in the Kindergarten. And in that report, what Joan and her co-author, Ed Miller, say is that they want to draw attention the attention of all Americans to a national disgrace, the transformation of public kindergartens from places where love of learning was thoughtfully nurtured into pressure cooker classrooms where teachers are required to follow scripts, labor under unrealistic one-size-fits-all standards, and test children relentlessly on their performance. Kindergarten has ceased to be a garden of delight and has become a place of stress and distress. Joan, what's going on? Welcome, and let me ask you that question. Thanks, Jack. It's great to be here with you and to talk about this report and the sad picture that it presents of what's happening in kindergartens today. Um, first of all, our we knew anecdotally that things had changed radically in the last 10 years, especially in kindergartens, though I've personally tracked these changes over the last 30-some years. Um, But we knew that they had changed radically under No Child Left Behind during the last 8 to 10 years. And, um, but we had no evidence. There was no research about what was going on. So we were able to commission three studies that um, one of them was qualitative, went into 14 different kindergarten classrooms. Um, The researchers went several times to each room to observe what was happening and also to talk with the teachers and principals. And then two research teams in New York and Los Angeles um, gave a lengthy questionnaire to teachers to fill out. And that helped us to see what was actually happening. And the the gist of it is this, that um, these teachers were teaching in all-day kindergartens. About half of them were teaching in Title I schools, low-income children. And 
they were spending two to three hours each day teaching literacy, teaching math, and either giving standardized tests or preparing children for test taking. And the rest of the time was devoted to other things, but really less than 30 minutes a day was being given to playtime, which used to be at the heart and soul of kindergarten education. Used to be an opportunity when children could try out their own ideas and you know, follow their own lead in self-education, one could say, and develop their social capacities with other children. They're given almost no time to do that anymore. And that's having dire consequences for children. So essentially, the, pre- the kindergarten has become the first grade of yesterday. Yes. And, and so the pressures that are on the children in the, in the kindergarten are such that they are being tested for their academic development? That's correct. They're given tests in some schools every four to six weeks. They take a standardized test. And um, what one realizes with young children is they're not good test takers. So you have to really prepare them if you're going to be testing them. And um, teachers are spending 20 to 30 minutes every day preparing children to take tests. Even with that, children are very inco- young children under the age of eight are very inconsistent in how they take tests. So a child can take a test one day, do beautifully, take the same test the next week and do terribly. They're so affected by their moods, whether they slept well, whether they ate enough, you know, we're all affected by those things, but as adults, we can kind of rise above it. Little children don't rise above what's happening bodily to themselves. So they are very affected by all of these things. And for that reason, when No Child Left Behind was passed, it was made clear that the testing would only begin in grade three with eight-year-olds. Um, but the pressure is so great to have children do well on those tests that the pressure has now come down into the lower grades kindergarten and increasingly preschool to get children testing so that they will test well in third grade. Mm-hmm. Now, is standardized testing a, uh, an adequate means of assessing young children? How, how does it work? No, the experts say it's not. I mean, some of the leading organizations say you might as well flip a coin as make a decision based on a standardized test of a five-year-old. It's so unreliable. Well, nobody would make decisions based on flipping a coin. It would just be unethical to do that to a child. But in essence, that's what we're doing when we give them a standardized test, and then we make a major decision based on that score. So for example, some children are placed in special ed classes based on those test scores. Others are put into gifted and talented programs based on test scores. It's not like you're saying, well, we'll look at the test scores and that will make up 10% of the decision. Mm -mm. There are schools that use these scores for basically 100% of the decision. And it's, it's unfair to the children. It's really unethical to do that to children. We are speaking with Joan Allman from the Alliance for Childhood and speaking about their new report, Crisis in the Kindergarten. And please call in with your questions here at WPFW 202-588-0893. Now, Joan, we look at the impact of testing in the kindergarten and the way it impacts these young children. What happens when children fail these tests? Well, the growing, um, there's a growing rate of retention in kindergarten, that is kindergarten children being held back because they have failed kindergarten. Again, expert organizations say young children should not be held back in school. Um, 
there's no evidence showing that holding them back actually helps them in the long term. There is some evidence showing that it harms them. We also know from research that if children are held back twice in the course of their overall schooling, they have a 95% chance of dropping out in high school. So you definitely don't want to squander one of these retentions at kindergarten. But some states that have shown their statistics show that in the last 10 years, retention rates have doubled or tripled in kindergarten. So that's one aspect of what's happening. But another aspect that's very disturbing are the number of reports and beginnings of research showing serious aggression and behavioral problems in children in kindergartens. A lot of people may remember the television um, coverage of a child being led out of kindergarten in handcuffs a couple of years ago. That was very extreme, but many children now are being, um, well, more than chastised. They're being dealt with in one way or another for extreme behavioral difficulties. And nobody has fully ascertained why this is on the growth, why it's growing the way it is, but the assumption on many people's parts is that because of this pressure that children are under in kindergarten, especially children who already are showing some weaknesses um, in their social-emotional life, let's say. This is just putting them right over the edge. They cannot cope with it. And I I might just add that it's not just a problem in kindergarten. There's a Yale Yale study of preschoolers, of um, preschoolers being expelled from school. And it found that the rate of expulsion, and they looked at preschoolers in 40 states, the rate of expulsion was higher than the national average of kindergarten through grade 12 expulsions. And among those preschoolers that were expelled, four and a half times more boys were expelled than girls, which is usually a good indicator that the education is kind of forcing children to sit still too much, concentrate too much. Boys need to learn through movement and activity. Girls do too, but it's more extreme with boys. So if you have these children tied down, not literally, of course, but figuratively, to seats or sitting in circle for 45 minutes or so, such as I've seen in in preschools and kindergartens, they just can't cope, and especially the boys can't cope. Now, you mention in your report that... um the instruction that's given to children in a kindergarten class, and we're talking about five-year-olds, and just so that we picture that young child, and they're being asked to sit with paper and pencil for two to three hours a day. Right, and it's not always with paper and pencil, but the teacher is, let's say, in charge of that time. The teacher is giving instruction in one form or another, and usually not very playfully. Usually it's more didactically. That is, the teacher's holding forth, giving instruction. Um, And then some of the time, the children are sitting with paper and pencil. But as I say, I I was in a public kindergarten recently where circle time went on for close to an hour of children sitting and being instructed in different things, some of which were a bit playful, but a lot of them were very didactic. And I felt watching these children about half the time, you would have thought these children had serious learning difficulties because they just weren't getting it. And the other half of the time, it was clear they were very bright, energetic, young kindergarten children um, who were getting things. But the teachers are expected to teach a lot of things now that they didn't used to teach in kindergarten, used to be in first grade. 
And some children get it, and a lot of children don't get it. And those children just after a while feel inadequate. They feel there's something wrong. As you said in the beginning, children look to us as adults, parents and teachers, as people they can trust. So if we're offering them something in the classroom, they they think, well, this is, some, this is good. This yeah. is something I should be able to do. My teacher is That's asking right. this of me. And they, they just can't. They don't get it. Yeah. They don't need to get yeah. it and yet. There's, and there's all sorts of, there are all sorts of reasons why they don't get it. I mean, if you right. look neurologically, uh, when the nerves aren't myelinated, it's hard for children to have learning uh, understandings that, that stick. That's right. And so this idea that they come and they go makes sense. And, right. and then when you think that their self-image is being really formed at this age, that when they fail, yeah. it affects them for their whole life. Exactly. Yeah. And a lot of children, I think, are lost by the time they leave kindergarten or first grade. They've already decided they, they, they're going to fail. They're That's not right. making it. Yeah. Um, if I could just add one more thing sure. to it. What, the comment that I hear most often from public school teachers is that by third, fourth grade, they see burnout in their children. And a friend whose children are in first grade at the moment said that the teacher said to her in the fall, the reason I love teaching first grade is that the children are so fresh and alive still. I look across the hall at the fourth graders and the light is out in their eyes. They are burned out. And that is a tragedy. We don't have any children that we can spare that way and just burn them out. We want our children to be lively and energetic and show their full intelligence, you know, and their creativity. That's what we're here for. Now, now Joan, not to belabor the bad news, mm -hmm. but I think that one of the things that struck me in your report was that teaching is changing. And it's, it's changing so that it's geared toward the types of understandings that can be tested in the standardized test. And, and that type of teaching, which we call scripted teaching, is becoming more prevalent in classrooms. And you have a very interesting picture of a principal's idea of what an ideal classroom would now be. Would you mind sharing that with our listeners? Yeah. We, um, we, we go to the big education conference every year the, from the National Association for the Education of Young Children, and teachers stop by our booth and share things with us. And one of them said that her principal, his goal is to be able to go into one kindergarten class and hear a sentence begun coming out of the script that the teachers have to follow, um, leave and go into the next kindergarten class and hear that same sentence finished in that class. And I think most Americans don't realize that how many classrooms are now scripted, certainly not all of them. But in California, something like a third of the schools are using scripts from kindergarten through grade five, and now some also in preschool. And these scripts, um, typically there'll be an hour, hour and a half for literacy and about an hour for math. And teachers are given a big book, spiral-bound book, and they are expected to read from that book. And I've been told that um, on each page, you're also told which questions children are most likely to ask and here's how you answer this set. And if they ask these questions, just go back to the script. Don't answer the questions. So very little is left to the imagination of the teacher during this scripted time. And the program that's widely used in Southern California is called Open Court. And there are, in many schools, inspectors in the hallways who come in to make sure that the teachers are on script. And the teachers openly refer to them as the Open Court Police. Uh -huh. It's written up that way now in professional articles. 
And we are speaking with Joan Allman from the Alliance for Childhood, and our number here is 202-588-0893. And uh, Joan, I'm thinking about this scripted learning. So your image of this corridor is that every classroom door, if they were all opened, the same lesson would be taught in the same way in each room. Yeah, that's basically right. You know, the sentences, some might go faster and some a little bit slower, so it's not all synced, but it would be the same lesson on the same day, definitely. And this for a democracy. If I can just interject this, I often go to international conferences, and when I share this, the people who are most appalled are those who grew up under communism because all their childhood and youth, they longed for the freedom of America. And when they hear that we are doing this to our children, this is so much worse than anything they had in their education, they just cannot believe that we are doing this to our children, that we are undermining our own freedom and democracy in this way. Now, one of the things that I want to to mention here tonight is a statement from your report. And it says that the withering of imagination in childhood is a looming catastrophe with consequences as profound as global climate change, but much less widely recognized. The very attributes we want to nurture in our children, creativity, initiative, collaboration, problem solving, courage, they're best developed through imaginative play. And yet, didactic instruction and standardized testing have pushed play out of the early childhood classroom. And I wanted to talk with you because I know that your Alliance for Childhood uh, is involved in a play project and that you're trying to help American educators uh, remember the value of play. Uh, What are the benefits for children when they play? Oh, gosh. Where do we start? Yes, where do we start? It's so vast. You know, developmental psychologists and others talk about different aspects of child development. So you have physical development, social and emotional development, and cognitive or intellectual development. And there are dozens, hundreds of studies really about play that link play to gains in each of those areas. So, you know, you can imagine the child who plays actively has a lot more physical prowess than others, but a lot more agility and a lot more... um, ability to just manage their bodies, know how to, to assess risk, how, to, how high they can jump, you know, how far they want to climb or, or go. Also with their hands, they're much better with their hands because play involves the hands very much. We can come back to this, but the use of the hands is really declining in this country. It's of major concern in the engineering profession, for instance, which still needs young people to come out of college who know how to do things with their hands. Um, So physically, there's all sorts of benefits, but also socially and emotionally. We've been talking with business people about some of the challenges that they're facing now. And they say one of their challenges is they hire very bright young people from college, and they bring them into the workplace, and they don't know how to sit down at a table and really work problems through with others. They're, They're not used to the social give and take, um, which children always developed in play. You know, you're constantly negotiating play. I grew up playing a lot of softball with my neighborhood friends. And, you know, there were no adults around. We organized it ourselves, and we negotiated all the time. 
And if somebody could, you know, a friend of mine broke her leg, was in a cast for a couple months, she didn't have to sit by the sidelines. She batted and I ran. You know, that was just something we arranged as kids. Nobody thought twice about it. So there are all sorts of things that children work on socially in play that they're not working on anymore because play is disappearing from children's lives. And from our preschool classrooms. And then specifically from our preschool and kindergarten classrooms, right? Uh, You're listening to On Parenting. I'm your host, Jack Petrash. Our number here at the studio is 202-588-0893, and we're speaking with Joan Allman from the Alliance for Childhood. Now, Joan, you mentioned children's hands, and I I just wanted Mm -hmm. to stop there because I'm remembering this book by Frank Wilson on the hand and how through the use of our hands, our brains develop. That's right. Frank Wilson's a neurologist who specialized in the hand, and he wrote a book called The Hand, and in it he talks about how an unusually large part of the brain is linked to the hand, so that when children learn anything with their hands, it's very stimulating to the brain. And he compares that with, for instance, sitting at a computer, which he says whatever the content may be, the handedness of it, the the lack of children using their hands with the computer um, means that the the learning is just not as intensive as with hands-on experiential learning. And there's a new book on play by a retired psychiatrist named Stuart Brown, and he gives a wonderful picture based on the experience of the Jet Propulsion Lab at Caltech. This is the lab that really has brought the whole aerospace industry into being. And in the late 90s, a lot of the engineers who had worked for decades were ready to retire, and the Jet Propulsion Lab was hiring the brightest young students from MIT, Stanford, Caltech, but it wasn't going well for them, and they realized the lab was in trouble because these young people had tremendous theoretical knowledge. They had ideas of how to apply that, but when the problems came, they did not know how to solve the problems. And what they finally learned that they needed to do was to ask job applicants Did you tinker with things when you were little? Did you take apart the toaster, the radio, the car? Because they found that the ones who had played and tinkered were the ones who knew how to solve problems. So they began hiring them, and then things were fine again. We're going to go to the phones now. We have a caller. Uh, Hello, are you there? Yes, I am. Um, I had heard, uh, education is not my field, but I had heard some time ago that the Japanese education system was highly regimented, and perhaps Korean. And I'd like to know if your guests have any uh, knowledge in that area as to how young Japanese children are regimented into school. And I'll take my answer off the air. Oh, good. Well, thank you. Jan, right? Yes. Thank you, Jan. My knowledge is this, that um, the schooling becomes regimented at the elementary level in Japan and also in China, but that actually they let children do a lot of play and experiential learning at the preschool and kindergarten level. And um, that's, you know, that's one of the differences that they do that. Um, I might also mention here a study that was done in Germany some years ago that I think is very revealing because the German kindergartens were play-based kindergartens. But in the 1970s, a wave went through Germany of transforming kindergartens into being more intellectual, more cognitive-based. And before all of them had switched, a study was done where 50 kindergarten classes were studied that had play and 50 were studied that had cognitive learning. 
And um, they followed these youngsters, about a 1,000 on each side of the study, up until age 10 when they were in fourth grade. And what they found was that the children who had come from the play-based kindergartens did so much better on every measure that Germany switched all of its kindergartens back to being play-based. It, one is really not sacrificing learning by helping children to play when they're young. In fact, one intensifies their learning considerably. Yeah. And um, China and Japan, I think, both know that lesson. In addition, a country like Finland, which consistently comes in number one in a big international test called the PISA test, um, their children not only play in kindergarten, they stay in kindergarten until age seven yeah. when they then enter first grade. And they yet they do the best on this big test as adolescents. That's good to know. Uh, we're going to take another call. Hi, are you there, Mimi? I am. <laughs> Did I say your name properly? Mimi, Mimi? but that's okay. Uh-huh. Hi, what's your question? Uh, well, I just want to say that this is the most refreshing program I have heard in a long time. And I listen to PFW all the time, but this topic is so important. And I... I just, I'm like, I'm really blown away. Um, I'm 73. I'll be 73 next month. God and bless you. I um, have for a long time known this and don't really know what to do about it in this society. And I'm hoping very much that the word is going to get out. And I just wondered what plans you have for revolutionizing this um, really devastating situation. I do want to know that, but I, I want to say that I've been coming up against something that I, the words are exactly what I've heard is exactly what I've come up with. I, um, actually we're in the honey business and, uh, but I'm retired now and I felt that I had the concept of being uh, correctly to, for people to start businesses in the cities, in the inner cities where there's very little fresh food, yes, and um, take it from there where people will be able to have fresh food and people will be able to have businesses that are viable because there's a need. Fruit and vegetables to start with, very simply done. And I have been looking around for people to want to do this. And people do want to do it. But I have not found one person who has has the ability. I, I don't mean necessarily all the physical ability, but just the way to be able to think the way uh, an immigrant who was not educated could come in and know, well, I've got to do this, this, and this, and I'll stick with it, and I'll work hard, and I'll work with my family and my friends, and we'll do well. To me, it's a simple formula. And what you're describing, it just plays itself out here because the intellectual side uh, of being told what to think, not even just thinking and not doing, but to sit there from age two and hear somebody tell you what to think, just to listen to me, then how can you think for yourself? And how can you do, of course? So um, along with that, and this is the last thing, yeah. that, you know, the idea that immigrants are, are coming here and uh, they're, they're being brought in because they could get paid less. Well, that's really not it. It's because they can still do things. They can 
you know, use their hands and their minds and their bodies and a shovel or a knife or whatever it is that they have to do. So with that, I would like to hear if you have any plans of getting this really out there. Thank you, Mimi. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Mimi. Um, Yes, we do have plans, and we are starting quite a bit this spring, but we'll continue over the next year or two. We know this is not a short-term project to change the way America thinks about early education. Um, We're just now planning a briefing for the House of Representatives on this issue. I also have a meeting with somebody high up in the Department of Education to discuss it. Um, And we're reaching out in different ways. We're preparing fact sheets for principals and for parents and for many others um, that help distill this information and make recommendations. Um, Trying to think what else we've got on the agenda at the moment, but we have quite a bit that we'll be doing. We we also have our interview, you know, having interviews with the media. Um, We're expecting some coverage in the New York Times Magazine on May 3rd. You can take a look for that. Um, And there was just today a wonderful article that came out in the Harvard Education Letter that talks about the report. So things are beginning to, you know, percolate. This report just came out a few weeks ago. At a slow and steady pace for a long race to, to help get this word out. That's it. Right. We're speaking with Joan Allman. We're going to take a break now and come back and continue to talk about the Alliance for Childhood and their new report, Crisis in the Kindergarten. This is Dr. Ron Daniels, president of the Institute of the Black World, inviting you to attend two major events. Report Card on Obama, a national town hall meeting on the eve of President Obama's first 100 days. Friday, April 24th, 7 o'clock p.m. at the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church, 1313 New York Avenue Northwest. Congressman John Conyers, Dr. Ronald Walters, Dr. E. Faye Williams, and Arlene Hope Baker are among the panelists for this event. In a benefit fundraising reception, the curious case of Dr. Ron Daniels, a celebration of my 39th birthday. Again, immediately following the town hall meeting, with special guests Haki Matabuti, Joe Madison, and Verna Avery Brown. Free and open to the public, the contributions will be accepted. For further information, call 202-745-2999. That's 202-745-2999. Or visit the website, reportcardonobama.com. Hi, welcome back to On Parenting here at WPFW 89.3. And our guest tonight is Joan Allman from the Alliance for Childhood. And we're speaking about their new report, Crisis in the Kindergarten. And our number here is 202-588-0893. And we're going to start with a phone call. Art, are you there? Yes, I am. Good. Welcome. Well, thank you. Uh, Again, I'd like to just piggyback on what the other one. This is one of probably the few uh, shows that I've heard that has some some very dire consequences, but it's so informative. My question is, in light of, you know, the No Child Left Behind thrust, which has proved to be very disastrous for inner-city children, primarily when I say inner-city, I'm speaking about those that are disenfranchised from private school, uh, communities that have a high revenue base, tax base that gives quality education uh, of a different nature. Now, my concern is, does this impact that you're speaking about across all uh, uh, boards, you know, boundaries? Good question. Good question. 
Yes, I think this impact definitely, you know, touches on children of all different social and economic backgrounds. Um, I do think that it has the biggest impact on children from low-income areas, and that's also where you find the kindergartens most structured, you know, most using the scripted approaches. I often think, as I hear teachers describe what they're doing, you know, with scripted teaching, for instance, that I don't think middle-income parents would put up with it, frankly. Um, it's m widely used in inner-city schools, and I think it's, it's, you know, just very harmful. It really diminishes the creativity and imagination of the children as well as of the teachers. But the overall problem, the pressures on children to learn more than they are developmentally ready for is affecting children across the board. And these behavioral problems that I mentioned, the stress and, and distress of children, I would say is affecting children across the board. Thank you. Thank you, Art. Now, Joan, I, I want to look at this play question uh, in a little more depth because I believe it's such an important topic. And recently I was reading a book by Malcolm Gladwell, Outliers, uh, one of those new bestsellers. And in that book, he was talking about um, studies that were done on intelligence and how they were trying to assess the intelligent levels, levels of children and predict their success. And what they found that intelligence alone wasn't really a predictor, especially if they looked at the kind of creative thinking that was needed for Nobel Prize winners. And that when they looked at Nobel Prize winners and where they were coming from, they found that they were coming from schools all around the country. They weren't just coming from Harvard and MIT and Stanford, but from all sorts of colleges, small colleges as well as large. And then when they looked more closely, they found that it wasn't just intelligence that was needed for this kind of innovative breakthrough, but it was a, a type of creative thinking. And they were looking at divergent thinking as a way of entertaining uh, a myriad of possible, possible answers for a question, which is the kind of creative thinking that um, creative minds have, people like Einstein and Ian Fleming and uh, uh, people who looked at um, s topics and made breakthrough discoveries. What is the relationship of play to divergent thinking? Well, play, I think, really fosters divergent thinking. What divergent thinking means is you look at a situation or you look at an object and you see all sorts of possibilities with it rather than just one possibility. So just for example, when I was a teacher and we had very simple props, play materials in the kindergarten preschool where I taught, children did hundreds of different things with these. I, I sometimes thought if I had to provide them you know, with every scenario, the, you know, the props they wanted, like for rockets one day and castles another and a farm and so on. I would have to have a warehouse for a kindergarten. But instead, you give them a few baskets of logs or blocks. You give them sticks and you know, stones and pine cones and cloth and clothespins, and they create all the worlds that they need. And that's a form of divergent thinking, that you just take basic things and you see dozens of possibilities over time for how to use those things. It's the opposite of the kind of thinking that's cultivated, for instance, in standardized testing, where if you see too many possibilities in A, B, C, D, you're in trouble. You know, your mind needs to be trained that you can pick one thing, that you're not nuanced, that you are not creative, because if you are, you see too many subtleties and possibilities 
in that true, false, or multiple choice uh, test. So when we're giving tests, especially to young children or making them, using them for high stakes decisions at any age, we are basically saying to the child, forget divergent thinking, Mm -hmm. forget creative thinking. It will get you in trouble on this test. We want a narrow, linear form of thought. And that becomes then the prevailing way of thinking. You know, it makes me think, Joe, when I hear you speak about Jane Healy's book, Endangered Minds, and her premise was that the way we use our brains in this early childhood time uh, shapes our brains, and that when our children have creative thinking, divergent thinking, that our brain develops more complex neural pathways. But if they don't, we don't develop those. No. And develop very narrow pathways of thought. And it's a sobering thought when you think of what we're doing to children in our preschools. And they are the future of our country. We look at our country economically and we want to see a strong economic future for America. But it seems like we're at cross purposes here. I know. And I'm, I'm feeling more and more that we're actually scripting the American mind. It's not just the kindergarten. If I could give a couple of other examples... I have a young friend who teaches advanced placement English classes in a public high school, and she showed me the textbook that she was using, and it had fabulous literature for these high school students, things I never studied when I was in high school. But this was the teacher's version, so all around the edges were the one-minute biography of the great writer, you know, the questions for conversation in the classroom, the questions for tests, and so on. And I said to her, you know, this is requiring strong thinking from the students, but it's treating you as a teacher as if you're an idiot and can't do this work. She said, right. She said, in the sales pitches, with this textbook, you can put anyone in the classroom, including the janitor, not to speak against janitors. But the point being that we were diminishing our expectations of what the human mind can actually do at the teacher level and then increasingly also at the student level. Thank you. We're going to go to the phones. We have a call. Greg, are you there? Yes, I am. Well, thank you for calling. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm a, a parent of a couple girls who have been through the Waldorf uh, school system, and I'm sure you've heard of this, uh, although many people haven't. It started in, in Germany or Austria, um, and it's uh, worldwide, and there's a local school, the Washington Waldorf School, and they... Um, it's very similar in uh, thinking to or uh, to to what you've been describing here, where they start uh, the cognitive uh, uh, like reading much later, um, and uh, their their play toys are logs and sticks and and baskets and pine cones and cloth. Uh, you know, it's very. Um, it uh, stresses the imagination and it's arts infused. So. Um, I, I'm afraid with this no child left behind um, uh, 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 mode of education, what we're getting is um, obedient um, factory workers rather than capable citizens. So that's my comment. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. Now, Joan, um, I know that one of the things that the Waldorf School offers is the playful teacher. And in your report, you describe the teacher, the teacher's role in a classroom that incorporates play and learning. Would you be willing to speak about that and speak a little bit about Waldorf and how it does that? Yeah. I think in the interest of full disclosure, it should be said that I used to be a Waldorf preschool kindergarten teacher. But the report 
was written uh, with my colleague, Ed Miller, who has not, no background with Waldorf. He comes out of the sort of reform movement of the public schools. And our advisory board is full of people who have expertise coming from many different directions, but not Waldorf. So the, the conclusions we've come to, it's not just trying to take Waldorf ideas and, and bring them out into the world. It's really taking the best ideas in education, which are also as it turns out, to be the ideas that one sees regularly in Waldorf schools. But in answer to your question, Jack, um, a playful kindergarten needs a playful teacher that is inwardly playful, imaginative, creative. And sometimes that is a problem in itself because younger teachers did not grow up playing necessarily. So I've been talking with... um, educators at at the college and university level about some of the things they're doing to bring play back to the students that they're educating who want to become teachers. And there's there are ways, you know, play lives so deep in us as human beings that it never really goes away, but it gets sort of covered over. So there are ways to uncover it and bring it forth. People that do improv theater, for instance, are great at this, you know, at, at kind of bringing out the playful spirit. But even just being assigned a task of Here's a you know a few dozen boxes. Create a world, brings out the playfulness in us. Or here are cloths and ropes. Do things. So there's lots of things that one can do to stimulate the imagination and creativity of the teacher. Um, and you know, one of the things I did, I I love telling stories. But I found that I was great on doing fairy tales. But if I wanted to make up stories, I had some problems with my imagination. So I just read really good children's books for my own inspiration and then would modify themes, and that's how I began as a storyteller. Um, Teachers, though, in working with children, one of the things they realize is so many children are growing up without playing that if the teacher gives the child a chance to play, often the child doesn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. This is one of the things we hear from teachers. Several of them in a smaller study we did said, if I give the children time to play, they don't know what to do. They have no ideas of their own. And that was just incredibly painful for me to hear because my experience of five-year-olds is they abound with ideas. But some of the things we recommend in the report um, have to do, for example, with limiting screen time. So it could be television, films, computer, because there's so much adult imagination that comes at the child when they're sitting in front of a screen that they don't really have a chance to develop their own imagination fully enough. So we definitely would recommend limiting or even eliminating in the early years the use of the screen as a form of entertainment so that children can flex their own imagination Mm -hmm. and creativity. And then there are different ways to stimulate imagination for the adult and the child. You know, good imaginative stories are a great way. The arts are a wonderful way to um, engage our imagination, puppetry, and so on. All of these, um, they've been around for eons because they do feed and stimulate the imagination and creativity of the human being. And then the, the other aspect, which I found very strongly as a Waldorf teacher, though I think it's not as well recognized elsewhere, is that there is a strong relationship between the work of the adult and the play of the child. So, you know, every parent knows that when they're at work in the kitchen, the young child wants to be at their feet. You know, they they like to absorb that energy of an adult working, or you're out in the garden, or you're chopping wood. Children gather around. 
Often they want to help for a little while, and then they just want to play in the vicinity of the adult, Mm -hmm. you know, who's at work. And the work of the adult really inspires the children's play. So when one is trying to get children back into play, very often a key is get them to do some real work and then let them play nearby. That's wonderful to think of, of children playing in the classroom. And one of the things that uh, was struck me in your report was how often we, mis- pers- we misconstrue play as something opposite of work. But in a healthy classroom, in a healthy kindergarten, play is seen as a complement to work. That it's a it's something that fulfills the child and completes their experience in school. And I thought that was very important. Um, yeah. You know, play arises from within. It's one of the differences about work and play. Because typically work for an adult, we you know, we go to work to earn a living, we work in the kitchen because we have to prepare a meal. You know, we always have a goal in mind. And it may be pleasurable to us, that's great. But there's usually a a purpose, a goal in mind. For children, play comes up from the depths of their being. They they don't have a goal in mind. They don't they don't it's a it's process. It's not a product that they're aiming for. And in the process they learn a lot about what I would call self education finding those things that really interest them that they will devote themselves to. And if, we're, if we deny them that chance, if we only have them doing the things that we tell them to do, they really lose out on mm-hmm. something. And I'm reminded of a 10-year-old who, when she was asked, well, what do you think play is? She said, it's what I do when the grown-ups stop telling me what to do. <laughs> yes, child-directed play. Yes. Now, you know, one of the things I think when you, when you say that is that when children play, they give themselves completely to that moment. They give 100% of themselves, and they're totally involved. You see it in their eyes and their focus and their, and their whole bearing. And isn't that what we want them to learn, how exactly. to give 100% of yourself? If those children learn how to do that, then what a wonderful future they have if they can give 100% of themselves to their high school work and 100% of themselves to their relationships, and 100% of themselves to the work that they do that they love. And that's the way, I think, to strengthen our country, is to help children learn how to give 100% of themselves through play. That's it. And when you watch children, for instance, in a kindergarten playing, all sorts of things can be happening around them, and they are unaware. They are so focused, so engaged in their play, and that's really what we want. Yeah. And then yeah. time moves. To, then they're in the zone. That's right. Everything slows. That's that creative That's place. That's right. It's Wonderful. the flow of play. Yeah. We're going to go to the phone for one last call. Julie, are you there? Yes. Ah, welcome. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate what you've been saying. Uh, two questions. One, my daughter, who's now in fifth grade, uh, says that she has a hard time with friends. She has many friends, but not really in her school because it seems to me that they don't have time to develop friendships, to talk, to do things sort of on your own initiative, which is part of what friendship, I mean, kind of the basic thing that you have to do to make friends. And um, if you could just say something about that and how maybe it starts in kindergarten. And also, if you could make a comment about after school and after school programs or after school in general, that whole period and how it relates to what you're talking about. 
Yeah, I'd be glad to. You know, we, we mulled over the title of our report a lot and called it Crisis in the Kindergarten, but the subtitle is Why Children Need to Play in School. And we deliberately put it that way and not just why they need to play in early childhood because we think play is so important that we wanted to get that message in somehow and, and chose to put it into the subtitle. Um, I think that schools do not give children as much time to play or just you know, breathe out. Of course, many schools have cut way back on recess, for instance, which was the playtime for children. And then with after-school programs, children are in the programs rather than going home and playing in the neighborhood. But many of these programs don't allow or encourage play. They feel that um, the parents don't want that, the parents want the homework done, the parents want certain instructional things to happen, and the children really need a time to breathe out. And the after-school folks, I, I just wish that they could take this up more fully and um, also learn the art of supporting play. We've been working with the Parks Department out near Chicago that has an after-school program, and the woman who's in charge of it, once they brought play in, she said it was wonderful. The parents would stand at the window when they would pick up their children. They would just relax watching the children play and come into the room in a whole different mood, whereas before when it was more instructional things, games and so on, the parents would come after work. They'd look harried at the window. They'd dash in to take their child out. She said the whole mood changed once they brought play into those after-school programs. So I think there's a lot that could be done there, and I really appreciate your bringing that up, Julie. Thank you, Julie. And Joan, I appreciate having you uh, as our guest and just hearing about this new report that the Alliance has put out. Um, the question that must live in parents is, what can we do? And I know getting the word out and speaking to your teachers and to your principals is important. Right. And you will find the whole report on our website. You can download it if you want. You can email it around to folks. There's also an eight-page summary. Um, and you can also order it online. And it costs $16, including postage, to order. But we're trying to make it as freely available to people as possible. So do take advantage of that. Make sure your child's teacher knows about it, the principal knows about it, the school board's members know about it, and so on. I think you can really use it as a tool to support your own concerns about what's happening in education today. Good, and your website address? Is www.allianceforchildhood, all one word, dot org. That's great, well great. Well I invite our listeners to download that report, to share it with teachers, and to spread the word that play is an important part of our, of our children's education. They need this, and as a country we need this. Uh, thank you, Joan. Thank but, you, Jack. It's been great. great to be here.
Uh, listening to that wonderful music from Bobby McFerrin reminds us that it's story time, and now uh, we're going to be fortunate to have a story from Kalanje Lushegon. Jorinda and Joringle. There was once an old castle in the midst of a large and dense forest, and in it an old woman who was a witch dwelt all alone. In the daytime, she changed herself into a cat or a screech owl. But in the evening, she took her proper shape again as a human being. She would lure wild beasts and birds to her, and then she killed and boiled and roasted them. If anyone came within 100 paces of the castle, he was obliged to stand still and could not stir from the place until she bade him be free. But whenever an innocent maiden came within this circle, she changed her into a bird and shut her up in a wicker work cage and carried the cage into a room in the castle. She had about 7,000 cages of rare birds in the castle. Now, there was once a maiden who was called Jorinda, who was fairer than all other girls. She and a handsome youth named Joringle had promised to marry each other. They were still in the days of Bethral, and their greatest happiness was being together. One day, in order that they might be able to talk together in peace, they went for a walk in the forest. Take care, said Joringle, that you do not go too near the castle. It was a beautiful evening. The sun shone brightly between the trunks of the trees into the dark green of the forest, and the turtle dove sang mournfully about the beech trees. Jordrinda wept now and then. She sat down in the sunshine and was sorrowful. Joringle was sorrowful too. They were as sad as if they were about to die. Then they looked around them and were quite at a loss, for they did not know by which way they should go home. The sun was still half above the mountain, and half under. Joringle looked through the bushes and saw the old walls of the castle close at hand. He was horror-stricken and filled with deadly fear. Jorinda was singing. My little bird with a necklace red sings sorrow, sorrow, sorrow. He sings that the dove must soon be dead. Sing sorrow, sorrow. Jug, 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 jug. Joringle looked for Jorinda. She was changed into a nightingale and sang jug, jug, jug. A screech owl with glowing eyes flew three times around her and three times cried, Toohoo! Toohoo! could not move. He stood there like a stone and could neither weep nor speak nor move hand or foot. The sun had now set. The owl flew into the thicket, and directly afterwards there came out of it a crooked old woman, yellow and lean, with large red eyes and a hooked nose, the point of which reached to her chin. She muttered to herself, caught the nightingale, and took it away in her hand. Joringle could neither speak nor move from the spot. The nightingale was gone. At last the woman came back and said in a hollow voice, Greet you, Zachariel. If the moon shines on the cage, Zachriel, let him loose at once. Then Joringle was freed. He fell on his knees before the woman and begged that she should give him back his Jorinda. But she said he would never have her again, 
and went away. He called, he wept, he lamented, but all in vain. Oh, what has to become of me? Joringel went away, and at last came to a strange village, where he kept sheep for a long time. He often walked around and around the castle, but not too near to it. At last, he dreamt one night that he found a blood-red flower, in the middle of which was a beautiful large pearl that he picked the flower and went with it to the castle, and that everything he touched with the flower was freed from the enchantment. He also dreamt that by means of it he recovered his Jorinda. In the morning, when he awoke, he began to seek over hill and dale for such a flower. He sought until the ninth day, and then early in the morning he found the blood-red flower. In the middle of it there was a large dewdrop, as big as the finest pearl. Day and night he journeyed with this flower to the castle. Then he was within a hundred paces of it. He was not held fast, but walked on to the door. Joringel was full of joy. He touched the door with the flower, and it sprang open. He walked in through the courtyard and listened for the sound of the birds. At last he heard it. He went on and found the room from whence it came. And there the witch was feeding the birds in the seven thousand cages. When she saw Joringel, she was angry, very angry, and scowled and spat poison and gall at him. But she could not come within two paces of him. He did not take any notice of her, but went and looked at the cages with the birds. But there were many hundred nightingales. How was he to find his Jorinder again? Just then, he saw the old man quietly take away a cage with a bird in it and go towards the door. Swiftly, he sprang towards her, touched the cage with the flower, and also the old woman. She could now no longer bewitch anyone. And Jorinda was standing there, clasping him around the neck, and she was as beautiful as ever. Then all the other birds were turned into maidens again, and he went home with his Jorinda, and they lived happily together for a long, long time. Well, thank you, Kalanje Lushagun, for a wonderful story. And now we've come to the end of our program. I want to thank Joan Allman, our guest, for being with us tonight and for speaking with us about her report from the Alliance for Childhood Crisis in the Kindergarten. I want to thank our engineer, T. I want to thank you, our listeners and our callers. And I want to invite you all to stay tuned for Monday Night Jazz with Rusty Hassan and invite you to tune in again on the third Monday of the month for our show on parenting. We'll be on in May. And I want to say to my second graders at the Walter School, good night, children, and may the stars watch over you. Hey.